Number six. Although the cruelty of the court had hitherto been very great, yet they had not wholly effectuated their wicked design of exterminating and destroying true religion and the professors thereof, both ministers and people. But like Israel, under Pharaoh's yoke, the more they oppressed them and suppressed their meetings, the more numerous and frequent they grew, so that their enemies were obliged to alter their course a little from cruelty into craft. This appeared in the first indulgence, granted Anno 1669, with design to divide Presbyterians among themselves, that they might the more easily destroy them. Hereby, a pretended liberty was given to several ministers ejected by the Act of Glasgow, 1662, especially public resolutioners, who had formerly served the court interest in that matter, under certain restrictions, destructive of their ministerial freedom and faithfulness to preach and exercise the other functions of the ministry in vacant churches. In this fraudulent snare, many were taken, and even such of them that did accept of the indulgence, but did not keep by the instructions given them by the council and observe the wicked anniversary, etc., were afterward prosecuted, fined, and some turned out. And those who refused compliance therewith and testified against it as flowing from that blasphemous supremacy and absolute power which the king had assumed were most severely handled, and their assemblies for public worship interdicted under the highest pains. A second indulgence was framed in the year 1672, as the first had not caught. By this, liberty was granted to a number of non-conformed ministers, named by the council, not yet indulged, to exercise their ministry in such places as the council thought fit to ordain and appoint them, conforming themselves to the rules given by the council to those that were formerly indulged, besides other restrictions, wherewith this new liberty was clogged. And as one especial design of the court, in granting both the first and this second indulgence was to put an effectual stop to the meetings of the Lord's people, ludicrously, ludicrously called by them field conventicles. So they took occasion, on account of their contempt of this their indulgence and liberty, to prosecute all such as kept or attended on these meetings in a more merciless and furious manner. This indulgence was accepted by many ministers, and part thereof by others represented as a grievance and redress required. But although nothing of this kind was obtained, yet it was fallen in with and accepted by most of those who subscribed the remonstrance against it. And those few who rejected it and continued faithfully to discharge their official trust in the open fields without coming under any of these sinful restrictions became more especially the butt of their enemies' malice and tyranny were more vigorously prosecuted, and such as were suspected or convicted of attending on their field meetings were fined in an exorbitant manner, and ministers imprisoned when they could be apprehended. And because of these field meetings, the great eyesore of the prelates still increased. They prevailed with the Council 1674 to take more special notice of the preachers at said meetings, who appointed a committee for that effect, and ordered their chancellor to send out parties to apprehend certain of them according to their direction. And the same year, a bond was imposed, binding and obliging tenants, that if they, their wives, or any of their children, cotters, or servants, should keep or be present at any conventicles, either in houses or fields, 
that every tenant laboring land be fined for each house conventicle, each cotter, each servant man in a fourth part of his year's fee, and husbands the half of these fines for such of their wives and children's as shall be at the house conventicles, and the double of these respective fines for each of the said persons who shall be at any field conventicles, etc. And upon refusal of said bond, they were, be put, were to be put to the horn and their escheat or forfeiture given to their masters. They likewise, at the same time, issued forth another proclamation for apprehending the holders of and repairers to field meetings by them designed rebels, and whoever should see such should have the fines so unjustly imposed for their reward, with a particular sum offered for apprehending any of the conventicle preachers, and this sum doubled for some that were eminent among them, and diligent in working the work of him that sent them, against whom their malice was more especially turned. These rigorous measures they continued to prosecute, and in the year 1675, letters of intercommuning were given out against several ministers and private Christians by name, both denouncing them rebels and secluding them from all society in the kingdom of Scotland, further requiring that no accommodation should be given or communication any manner of way held with them, under the pain of being, according to them, accounted soci criminis and pursued as guilty with them of the same crimes. These inhuman and unprecedented methods reduce the sufferers to many wanderings and great hardships. It is impossible to recite the miseries these faithful confessors underwent, wandering about in deserts, in mountains, in dens, and in caves of the earth, destitute, afflicted, tormented. Besides the other severe impositions upon the country in general, the bonds imposed, and rage of the highland host then raised, which, together with the soldiers, greatly spoiled and robbed the West Country especially, by which means poor people were brought to very low circumstances. Number seven. Notwithstanding of all the tyranny and treachery hitherto exercised, the word of God grew, and converts unto Christ and the obedience of the gospel were daily multiplied ministers being forward and willing to preach, and the people willing to hear and receive the law from their mouth on all hazards. And the Lord Jesus, following his word and ordinances with his blessing, showed himself as mighty and powerful in the open fields, whether they were driven, as ever he had done in their churches, from whence they were driven, and which were now shut against them, filled with time-servers and antichrist's vassals. But against Christ's standard and banner thus displayed, the tyrant Charles II erected his opposite standard for the utter destruction of Christ's true servants and subjects. And having declared their lawful meetings for the worship of God according to his work, execrable rendezvous of rebellion, a convention of estates, anno 1678, was called and met, by which a large cess was imposed to maintain an additional army for the suppression of the true religion and liberty and securing tyranny and arbitrary government. On account of the imposition of this cess and the rigorous exaction of it, together with the cruelties and ravages of this new army maintained by it, the soldiers, having commissioned to dismiss and disperse their meetings, disarm, imprison, and kill preachers and people in case of resistance, 
and a price being put upon the heads of several faithful ministers, if brought to the council, dead or alive. Both ministers and people were laid under the necessity of carrying arms for their own defense when dispensing and attending upon gospel ordinances. And it was no wonder that finding themselves thus appointed as sheep for the slaughter, they looked upon this as their duty, and accordingly provided themselves with arms for their necessary defense against the wicked violence of those who thirsted after their blood, and, which was to them much more dear and precious, the ruin and destruction of the cause, interest, and gospel of Christ in the land. Unto these severe and hellish measures fallen upon at this time for the more effectual suppression and extirpation of the gospel of Christ and professors of it, the managers were principally instigated by that arch-apostate Sharp, though a bad preparative for his exit out of this world, which soon came to pass, anno 1679, in the dispensation of adorable providence and righteous judgment of God, executed upon such a notorious traitor, who, having first betrayed the church, and all along deeply imbrued his hands in the blood of God's saints and servants, had blood given him to drink, because he was worthy. Number eight. <clears throat> that the land might be more deeply soaked with blood, and made more heavily to groan under the inhabitants thereof, who had transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant, that the scene of cruel suffering might be more widely opened, and the bloody tragedy more effectually acted. The primate's death must now be added to the other pretended crimes of the sufferers. Many were terribly harassed on that account, who were no ways concerned in the action, and some were cruelly tortured and butchered by them for the same cause, though innocent thereof, for none of the actors did ever fall into their hands. These enemies were hereby rendered more rude, barbarous, and hard-hearted to all the sufferers who afterwards fell into their hands and breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the whole body of the persecuted Presbyterians throughout the nation. All this, however, did not dispirit these zealous witnesses or discourage them from attending to their work and duty, for we find them on the 29th of May, 1679, publishing their testimony at Ruther Glen against the wicked anniversary, on the same day appointed by the court for its celebration, and against all that had been done publicly by these enemies of Christ for the overthrow of his work and interest in the lands. They likewise committed their acts, recissory, supremacy, act restoring abjured prelacy, act of Glasgow 1662, the presumptuous act for appointing May 29th for an unholy anniversary, indulgences, etc., all to the flames, their just desert, in retaliation of the impious treatment given unto our solemn and sacred covenants, and other good and laudable acts and laws for reformation by their sacrilegious enemies in sundry cities of these covenanted kingdoms. And so, after distinguishing, extinguishing the bonfires, a part of the unholy solemnity of the enemy's anniversary day, and concluding what they had done with prayer and praise as they had begun, Mr. Douglas, one of their ministers being along with them, they withdrew. This Christian valor was followed with the Lord's appearance for them in a remarkable manner. On the following Sabbath, at Drumclog, near Loudonhill, 
where, being attacked by Claverhouse, when attending on public worship, they completely routed him and his troops, rescued Mr. John King and a number of other prisoners whom Claverhouse had seized that morning from their hands. Afterward, they declared the grounds and causes of their present defensive posture in that short manifesto or declaration published at Glasgow, June 6, 1679. But when their numbers multiplied, their divisions increased, and lawful means for honestly defending the cause were by majority refused. Mr. Welch and that Erastian party with him, being by this time come up, did in their declaration at Hamilton take in the tyrant's interest, against which those who were honest and faithful to the interest of Zion's king contended and protested that in conscience they could not take in the interest of one into the state of the quarrel who had manifestly stated himself in opposition to the interest of Christ, that it was inconsistent with the covenant which could not bind them to espouse the interest of its destroyers and the destroyers of all that adhered to it, and also contrary to their testimony and declaration for the covenants and work of reformation at Rutherglen, Glasgow, etc., and against all defection from the same. Thus, when the most part, in a great measure, forsook the Lord, he was justly provoked to forsake them, and their great divisions, landing them in such confusion, they became an easy prey to the enemy, by whom they were totally routed at Bothwell, June 22, 1679, where they felt the dismal fruits and consequences of joining at all with that Erastian faction, after they had openly declared and discovered what they were. This was so far from proving any defense to them, notwithstanding the numbers of that party, that it proved their destruction. And those whose hearts were upright and honest in the cause of God, by their means and holy sovereignty, were made to fall a sacrifice to their enemy's wrath. The slain on that day were many, and the after-cruelty to prisoners great. They being carried into and kept for a long time in the Greyfriars Churchyard of Edinburgh, exposed, defenseless, night and day, to tempests of all kinds. By this inhuman usage, with design to wear out the saints of the Most High, together with the insinuations and persuasions of some of the indulgence favorers, their faith failing them in this hour of temptation and fear prevailing, a number of these prisoners were persuaded to take the ensnaring bond of peace whereby they were engaged to own their rising at Bothwell to be rebellion and to oblige themselves never to rise in arms against the king and to live peaceably, etc., while others of them were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Number 9. Although this defeat and dispersion of the espousers of the truth and cause of Christ, in opposition both to his avowed enemies and secret betrayers, brought the remnant that were left into very melancholy circumstances, their enemies, having in a great measure extinguished the light of the gospel by apprehending and shedding the blood of their faithful pastors, who used to hold forth the word of life unto them as a light whereby they might discern between sin and duty, and others who had formerly been helpful unto them in strengthening their hands and encouraging their hearts in the way of their duty, were overtaken and overborne with fainting and discouragement so that, in respect of public guides, they were at this time as sheep without a shepherd. Yet, in this disconsolate and scattered state and condition, Christ, the chief shepherd, had compassion on them, and raised up those two faithful ministers and zealous contenders for the faith once delivered to the saints, Richard Cameron and Donald Cargill, to come forth 
for the help of the Lord against the mighty, and to jeopard their lives along with his people in the high places of the field, in bearing faithful testimony for his noble truths and cause, and against all the sins and defections of the time. The first of these, soon after he had showed his activity and zeal in that banner, displayed against the church's enemies, in the declaration published at Sakhar, June 22, 1680, did honorably and bravely finish his course, among many others of Zion's true friends, in the defeat they again sustained at Erzmas, where, in imitation of its princely master, he valiantly fought his way to the incorruptible crown. The latter afterward narrowly escaped his enemy's hands by means of Mr. Henry Hall of Hohead, that honest sufferer for truth, who, to save his minister's life, lost his own, on whom the Queen's Ferry paper, a draft of a covenant, engagement unto certain duties, was found, and was, by the power and providence of God, preserved until he accomplished that signal piece of generation work in drawing forth the sword of excommunication against the tyrant Charles II and some others of the chief actors in that bloody tragedy, and that, because of their bloodshed, perjury, heaven-daring profaneness, debauchery, inhuman and savage cruelty acted upon the people of God. The witch sentence struck, stuck fast in the hearts of these enemies of Zion's king unto the day of their death, and by some of their own acknowledgments would through eternity. Shortly after this, that faithful minister crowned his work with martyrdom and entered into his master's joy. This murdering period spared neither pastor nor people, age nor sex, while gross transgressors and deluded enthusiasts, as Gibb and his faction, were screened from condign punishment, though some of them had, had arrived at that prodigious length and wickedness as to commit the holy scriptures and confession of faith to the flames. Number 10. So many of these once living and lively witnesses for Christ being now slain, and what was yet surviving of the scattered flock deprived of their painful shepherds, and not being able to drink of the sanctuary waters so muddied by their former pastors, who had defiled the same by sinful compliance with the time's defections, they resolved, under divine direction, to gather themselves together into a general meeting, for advising and informing one another anent their duty in such critical times of common danger that so whatever concerned the whole might be done with due deliberation and common consent. The which general meetings afterwards afforded them both good comfort amidst their discouragements and also good counsel amidst their perplexities and doubts, and proved an excellent expedient for preserving the remnant from the destruction and contagion of the times, propagation of the testimony, and keeping alive the public spirit of zeal and concern for the cause and interest of Christ. And for these ends they have been kept up ever since. In the meantime, that evil instrument James, Duke of York, receiving commission from his perjured brother to preside in the whole administration of Scott's affairs, upon his arrival for this effect, held a parliament which began July 28, 1681, wherein, besides other of his wicked acts, that detestable, blasphemous, and self-contradictory test was framed, which in the first part thereof contains the swearer's solemn declaration by oath of his sincere profession of the true Protestant religion contained in the first confession of faith, ratified by Parliament 1st, James 6, 1567, 
which confession asserts in the strongest terms Christ's alone headship and supremacy as lawgiver and king in his church without co-partner or competitor, and that he shall adhere thereunto all the days of his life and renounce all doctrines, principles, or practices contrary thereto and inconsistent therewith while in manifest contradiction thereto, the blasphemous supremacy in the utmost extent thereof is asserted. The covenants, National and Solemn League, the chief barriers against popery, Erastianism, and arbitrary power are renounced, and unlimited allegiance under the occupant is enjoined and sworn to, and the prolatical government of the Church confirmed. This oath was at first administered to those in public trust only, and thereby all were turned out of their places who had any principles of common honesty remaining in them. But afterward it was imposed on all persons of all ranks, against which sinful encroachments on religion and liberty, the witnessing persecuted remnant accounted themselves bound in duty to admit their testimony, which they published at Lenerc, January 12, 1682, adhering to and confirming their former at Sanquhar, and giving reasons at length for their disowning the unlawful authority of Charles II. Upon intelligence hereof, this declaration, with those at Rutherglen and Sanquhar, were by order of the council with great solemnity burnt at the cross of Edinburgh by the magistrates in their robes, together with the solemn league and covenant, which had been burnt formerly, but now they would give new demonstrations of their rage against it in conjunction with these declarations, which they saw and acknowledged were evidently conformed to and founded upon it. After the publication of this testimony, the sufferings of that poor people that owned it were sadder and sharper than ever before, by hunting, pursuing, apprehending, imprisonment, banishment, death, and torture. This increasing rage, oppression, cruelty, and bloodshed being no more than what they might look for, agreeable to the spirit and principles of that popish incendiary to whom such trust was committed. Number 11. The poor wrestling remnant, besides their other grievous calamities and sufferings, being now obnoxious, too much censure, in their appearances for truth reproached, and invidiously misrepresented both at home and abroad by those that were at ease in Zion as having forsaken the right way and run into wild, extravagant, and unhappy courses, and withal being at this time destitute and deprived of their public standard-bearers. Their series of witnesses, since the death of Messrs. Cameron and Cargill, maintaining the testimony against the public national defections being in all appearance interrupted, except by martyrdom and sufferings, they were obliged to exert themselves both for their vindication from those calumnities and slanders wherewith they were loaded by their enemies to foreign Protestant churches especially, and for obtaining a supply of gospel ministers. Wherefore, sending some of their number abroad to represent the righteous of righteousness of their cause to the churches there and crave their sympathy in helping them to a supply of gospel ministers, the Lord was graciously pleased to countenance and bless their endeavors so that they obtained access for the instruction and ordination of young men for the ministry at a university in the United Provinces, and in process of time gave them a great reviving in their bondage by sending forth his faithful ambassador, Mr. James Renwick, who, 
while he stood on Zion's watchtower, ceased not night and day to give faithful warning of the danger approaching the city of God, evidently discovering his being clothed with his master's commission in bearing faithful testimony and witness, both against the avowed enemies of truth and backsliders from it. And notwithstanding all the malicious rage of deadly foes, ranging and keenly pursuing him through open or more secret places, the reproach of tongues and cruel mockings he endured by the divine blessing on his painful labors amidst so many hardships, the number of Zion's friends were greatly increased by the incoming and joining of many to the fellowship of their settled societies, who resolutely chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, which are but for a season. Upon this further attack upon Satan's interest, his emissaries issue forth fresh orders and give commission to soldiers, foot and dragoons, to hunt, search, and seek them out of all their most secret dens, caves, and lurking places where they might hide themselves in the remote, most remote and wildest glens and recesses in the mountains and deserts, allowing them to kill, slay, destroy, in any way to make an end of them wherever they might be found commanding the whole country at their peril to assist them and raise the hue and cry after the poor wanderers and not to reset, harbor, succor, or correspond with them any manner of way under the highest pains, but to do their utmost in informing against them. Thus, without regard to any of their unlawful forms of legal procedure, they defiled and besmeared the high places of the field with innocent blood. These unprecedented methods and measures oblige the sufferers for their own preservation, stopping the deluge of blood, and to, to deter the insolence of intelligencers and informers to publish the apologetic declaration, which they affixed on several market crosses and parish church doors upon the 28th of October, 1684, wherein they declare their firm resolution of constant adherence to their covenanted engagements, and to the declaration disowning the authority of Charles Stuart, warning all bloody dogs and flattering Ziphites to expect to be dealt with as they dealt with them, to be regarded as enemies to God and the covenanted reformation, and according to their power and the, de de the degree of their offense, punished as such, etc., after this declaration, these enemies were still more enraged, and their fury flamed more than ever formerly. They framed an oath, commonly called an oath of abjuration, renouncing and abjuring the same, and by a venomous, bloody proclamation enjoined this oath to be taken by all universally, from sixteen years and upward. Women as well as men, under pain of death, and many prisoners who, having the oath tended them, refused or declined it, were sentenced and executed all in one day, according to the tenor of their proclamation. And moreover, they on this occasion renewed their orders and commissions to the soldiers for pursuing and chasing after the rebels, as they designed them, more vigorously and violently, and to shoot or otherwise put them to death wherever they did light upon them. <coughs> In the midst of this confusion of slaughter and bloodshed, God cut off by death, February 6, 1685, that vile person, the author and authorizer of all this mischief, Charles II, who, Atticus-like, came in peaceably 
and obtained the kingdom by flattery. Daniel 11. Reigned treacherously and bloodily, and, like that wicked king Jehoram, 2 Chronicles 21, died without being desired or lamented, poisoned, as was thought, by his unnatural popish brother. And notwithstanding of all his bastards, begotten in adultery and fornication at home and abroad, he died without any to succeed him, saving him that was said to have murdered him. God pursued him with the curse of Hiel the Bethelite for his rebuilding of that cursed Jericho, prelacy, and of that impious and wicked tyrant, Coniah, Jeremiah 22, for his treachery and cruelty. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting any more upon the throne of Israel. Number 12. Notwithstanding the abundant proof that the Duke of York had given in many instances, and in both kingdoms, of his being a vassal of Antichrist, and notwithstanding of his open and public profession of papistry upon his brother's death, fairly warning all what they might expect, yet were not those who sat at the helm of affairs deterred from committing the reins of government into his hands. But contrary to the word of God and fundamental laws of the lands, this professed and excommunicated papist James, Duke of York, was, anno 1685, proclaimed king of these once covenanted but now treacherous and apostate lands, whereby they appointed themselves a captain to return into their anti-Christian bondage. To this grievous yoke, our infamous, perjured, and apostate state and council in Scotland heartily and voluntarily subjected themselves and the nation, while others did it with reluctancy, caressing and embracing with their dearest and best affections this enemy to God and Christ and His Church, swearing implicit and unlimited, unlimited obedience unto Him, and asserting His absolute power and supremacy, indefeasible and hereditary right, without ever so much as requiring Him to take the coronation oath, or give the least security for anything civil or religious a depth of degeneracy parallel to that eminency in Reformation purity from which they were fallen, but laid the reins on his own neck, that he might have full freedom for the satisfying of his lusts and fulfilling his wicked designs. This laid religion, liberty, and all at the mercy of absolute power and popish tyranny and still more and more cut off the people of God from having any hopes of mercy from their bloody enemies. On the contrary, the Duke of York, in his letter to his first Parliament, recommends and requires them to leave no means unattempted for the extirpation of the poor wandering sufferers, whom he brands with the odious names of murderers and assassins, wild and inhuman traitors, etc. And these his ready servants and bloody executioners, came nothing short of his orders in the execution of them, so that there were more murdered in cold blood in the open field without all shadow of law, trial, or sentence, more banished and sold as slaves, condemned and executed, etc., in the time of this usurper than in all the time of the former tyrant. 
as the honest sufferers, consistent with their testimony for truth, in opposition both to the secret and open subverters of the cause and state of Zion's quarrel with, quarrel with her enemies, could not concur in Argyle's declaration, although there were many things in it materially good and, and commend, commendable, nor join in a military association with him on account, among other things, of the too promiscuous administration admission of persons to trust in that party, who were then and afterward discovered themselves to be enemies to the cause. Yet, against this usurpation of a bloody papist advancing himself to the throne in such a manner, they published another declaration at Sanghar, May 28, 1685, wherein, approving of and adhering to all their former and considering that James, Duke of York, a professed and excommunicated papist, was proclaimed, they protest against said proclamation with reasons subjoined at length for their so doing, against all kinds of popery, general and particular heads, as abjured by the national covenant, against its entry again into this land, and everything that doth or may directly or indirectly make way for the same, etc., after this, Mr. Renwick and his followers were exposed to the greater fury of their adversaries. More cruel edicts were given forth against them, approving and ratifying of former acts for raising the hue and cry, etc., whereby their calamities were very much increased. Besides the slanders of professed friends, on account of their not associating and joining with them in their compliances, although, to the conviction of all unbiased minds, they fully vindicated themselves from all their injurious reflections. The extirpation of the Presbyterian interest, nay, the suppression of the Protestant religion in general, the reintroduction of popery and plunging the nations in anti-Christian darkness and tyranny, being the long-concerted design of this popish bigot now got into the throne, he resolves to lose no time and leave no stone unturned for the prosecution and accomplishment thereof. And, <clears throat> having made tolerable progress in the execution of this, his favorite scheme, although not without opposition, in England, he turns himself to Scotland, expecting an entire acquiescence in his pleasure there. Having found the first Parliament, which began 23rd of May, 1685, so much, according to his own heart, in their hearty and sincere offer of their lives and fortunes to assist, defend, and maintain him in his rights, prerogatives, sacred, supreme, and absolute power and authority, etc. Wherefore, the Parliament being to meet again April 29, 1686, in his letter to them, quote, he hardly recommends to their care his innocent Roman Catholic subjects, to the end that as they have given good experience of their true loyalty and peaceable behavior, they may have the protection of his laws without lying under obligations their religion could not admit of, that all penal laws made against them might be repealed, etc., <clears throat> but though many were for obliging their king in this particular, yet it could not be carried without debates and strong objections, so that, dissolving the Parliament, what he could not obtain there with any show or face of law, he effectuates by virtue of the prerogative royal and absolute power. In a letter to his Privy Council and proclamation enclosed bearing date February 12, 1687, granting a royal toleration to moderate Presbyterians, 
clogged with a number of grievous Erastian conditions and restrictions as usual. Secondly, to Quakers and other enthusiasts. Thirdly, to Papists, abrogating all penal statutes made against them and making them in all respects free. And so devoted were the Privy Council to his interests that without demur they published the proclamation and wrote back to the king, quote, that his orders were punctually obeyed, thanking him for this further proof of his favors to all his subjects, unquote. Thus this champion for Satan and Antichrist proceeded with his wicked design and so far succeeded. All kinds of papistry were publicly practiced, and many churches converted to mass chapels. For before this, by the king's letter to his privy council of August 21, 1686, papists were allowed the free exercise of their religion, the council required to support and maintain them therein, and the royal chapel at Holyrood House ordered to be repaired for popish service. By which means a door was opened for that swarm of Jesuits and priests, ascending as locusts out of the bottomless pit which quickly overspread the lands. But notwithstanding of all this indulgence and royal toleration granted to those three forementioned parties, yet there is no favor nor mercy for the honest and faithful sufferers and honorable contenders for the interests and prerogatives royal of Jesus Christ against his sacrilegious and blasphemous usurpation of the same. But while he thinks fit to give himself ease, as he himself says, by this means to tender consciences, he at the same time signifies his highest indignation against those enemies of Christianity, he means popery, as well as government and human society, the field conventiclers, whom he recommends to the council to root out with all the severity of the laws and the most rigorous prosecution of the forces, it being equally his and his people's concern to get rid of them. In consequence of this, <clears throat> all their artillery is directed against the Reverend Mr. James Renwick only, and that poor, afflicted, and persecuted people that adhered to him, all others being comprehended in the pretended liberty granted, so that they were prosecuted with fire and sword, and according to the utmost severity of their wicked laws made against them, and a reward of a hundred pounds sterling offered by the bloody council to any that should bring in Mr. Renwick to them, either dead or alive. But he, having his generation work allotted and cut out for him by God, was preserved and kept from falling into their hands until that he had finished the work of his master had given him to do. Notwithstanding all this hellish and anti-Christian rage and fury wherewith they did pursue him. About the beginning of the year 1686, he, in conjunction with Mr. Alexander Shields, who had lately joined him, wrote the informatory vindication by way of reply to various accusations and letters, informations, and conferences given forth against them and their people, wherein they vindicate, clear, and justify themselves from the heavy and false charges, slanders, and reproaches cast upon them by their enemies, as may be seen in said book. <clears throat> about this time also, Mr. Shields set about writing his Hind Let Loose, which was published next year, or a historical representation of the testimonies of the Church of Scotland for the interest of Christ, with the true state thereof in all its periods, wherein he also solidly, soundly, and judiciously vindicates the present testimony in all the principles thereof, as stated, against the popish, prolatical, and malignant enemies of that Church, for the prerogatives of Christ, privileges of the Church, and liberties of mankind, 
and sealed by the sufferings of a reproached remnant of Presbyterians there witnessing against the corruptions of the time. Whilst these two loving and faithful fellow laborers were thus industriously exerting themselves for the propagation and vindication of the persecuted gospel and cause of Christ, that fiery Jesuit, popish tyrant, and enemy to God and man, the Duke of York, and his popish party, were equally industrious, on the other hand, to promote their grand design of utterly extinguishing the light of the gospel, and bringing in Antichrist, with all his poisonous and hellish vermin and abominable idolatries, and that, with all the murdering, violence, diabolical subtlety and malignant rage that hell and Rome could invent and exert. He had formally published a proclamation, as is noted above, granting a lawless liberty to several sorts of persons therein specified, called his first indulgence. But, breathing nothing, but threatenings and slaughter against the people of God who stood, stood firm to his cause. But withal, this proclamation enjoined an oath in the room of all oaths formerly imposed to be taken by all that minded to share in his royal favor, wherein they swore not only absolute subjection and passive obedience, never to resist him, not only on any pretense, but for any cause, let him do or command to be done what he would. But also absolute, active obedience without reserve. Quote, that they shall, to the utmost of their power, assist, defend, and maintain him, his heirs and successors, in the exercise of their absolute power and authority against all deadly. Unquote. This was so palpably gross and odious that it was disdained and abhorred by all that had common sense. Wherefore, Finding that this proposal did not take, nor answer his design, in a letter to the council, bearing date about a month after the former, he endeavors to mend the matter and set it out in another dress, pretending that they had mistaken his meaning in the former, and so lets them know that it is his pleasure now that if the Presbyterian preachers do scruple to take the oath contained in the proclamation, or any other oath whatsoever, they, notwithstanding, have the benefit of his indulgence, without being obliged to take the oath provided they observe the conditions on which it was granted. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, 
neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.